Welcome to the From Battle to Business podcast. In this podcast, business coach and fellow veteran Dean Van Dyke will bridge the gap between service and civilian life, helping guide veteran business owners to supercharge their business and unlock hidden profits. You wouldn't go into battle alone, and now you don't have to in business. Let's get to it. Well, welcome back. This is From Battle to Business with your host, Dean Van Dyke. And today, I'd like to welcome Doug Thorpe. And Doug began his leadership journey as an officer in the U.S. Army, attaining the rank of captain. He's a performance-driven senior executive, entrepreneur, board member, thought leader, and coach with more than 40 years of success in the financial services, executive coaching, oil and gas industries, as well as small businesses. Leveraging extensive experience in guiding business transformation for growth-oriented organizations. He is a trusted guide for mid-cap companies to large global enterprises requiring expert assistance with leadership development, team performance, employee engagement, culture shifts, and change management. Welcome, Doug. Well, thanks, Dean. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, it's awesome to, uh, I think you are the first guest from Houston, Texas. Oh, okay. Well, I'll have to represent then. All right. Because I had the... um, Charles Reed, I think he's in Texas, but I think he's more around the Dallas area. So it seems like uh, starting to hit the folks in, in Texas pretty good, which not a bad thing. But uh, so let's start off. Just tell us a little bit about your experience as a captain in the Army and and how it helped shape your leadership journey that uh, you've been on. Yeah, and thanks for asking, Dean. I, uh, I, I did go into the military right out of college. But but my journey with the military actually started before that. I, as a young child, I grew up in San Antonio, and many people don't remember this, but once upon a time, San Antonio was the home of five different military bases. And um, to say we had a military slanted population would be an understatement. Mm-hmm. You couldn't uh, throw a rock without hitting somebody that had a military <laughs> connection. Sure. And it was just a natural segue. I participated in high school ROTC. That got me motivated to uh, pursue the same thing in college. I went to A&M and joined the Corps of Cadets and so spent all four years of my college experience in a uniform and then was commissioned in the Army and shipped out and went to uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, what is known as the Army Flight School. And um, all of that experience, put it all together, we're talking, you know, uh, 12 years of uh, military indoctrination and leadership training. And that really stuck with me and became really a focus I had on learning everything I could about leadership and effective leadership. Mm Mm-hmm. It's one thing to know it academically, but it's another to really lean into understanding the art and science of what leadership is all about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and there's always been, I mean, I my first foray, so I spent 14 years in the military, went Army, Navy, Army. That's a topic for another day. But um, but really, the, the military does have that model of leadership that um, you learn very quickly. Uh, my son's currently a major in the army and just recently promoted and um, served in Afghanistan. And so he learned that, you know, and, and because we're going to talk here in a minute, in a minute about management and leadership. And so uh, I think the military does a great job as far as leadership and growth and, and helping folks uh, start that journey. So, mm-hmm. 
So let's jump into this. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, before the show, we were talking a little bit about management and leadership. And um, in your opinion, is there a difference between management and leadership? And if so, why is that? It's a it's a great question, and honestly, it's one I use in my coaching business when I'm meeting executives and, and engaging in the early stages of things. I used to ask the question a little differently. I used to come out of the box with a basic question, is there a difference between management and leadership? And in the early days, eh, I would get debate. I would get some people say, no, not much. It's kind of one and the same, blah, blah, blah. But what I realized as the years went on, people, the the awareness of the distinct difference, and yes, there is a difference, it, it got to where the answer to that question was always, well, of course there's a difference. So I don't even bother to have that discussion. I usually just ask, what do you think is the difference between management and leadership? And I, I, I get a lot of input. And it all centers around a very basic phrase that I learned a long time ago, that management is about process mm-hmm. and leadership is about people. Mm-hmm. And I make the argument that somebody can create a career as a manager never moving the needle over to the leadership side, but still have a reasonably successful journey and successful career because running a process, making things happen, hitting budgets, uh, delivering on goods and services, that's certainly important to any kind of business. Mm -hmm. But the value in really leaning into the appreciation of leadership is that it does become a a people function. And as the, as the world has continued to evolve and the world we're in now in, in the workplace, and there's dozens and dozens of studies that are coming out post COVID about the significant shift in the mindset of the workforce Mm -hmm. and the, prevailing answer solution to overcoming the challenge is leaning into leadership. Recognize your personnel as human beings and speak on a human level, not a process level. And uh, so I think that's why it's, it's ever more important to understand what leadership could be about. Oh, I, yeah, I can't agree more. In fact, um, yeah, when I made the shift uh, from, and I've, I've got a question for you here, from doer to leader, um, I failed miserably. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about how do folks make that shift from doer to leader? Because, you know, my, I just left the military, um, had been a, a engineering tech, um, got promoted, and I started to implement some of the stuff I'd learned in the military and forgot they were people. And, um, uh, and, you know, quickly realized morale there, it, it was gone. And, and so how do folks make that shift successfully? Because for me, luckily my mentor was my oldest brother at the time. And he gave me two questions, which just totally transformed my my journey. Uh, so help the f- audience understand how do folks make that shift and make it successfully? 
That's a great question, and where I would go with the answer is that there does have to be a new kind of awareness. And you, if you're in that mode being promoted up from doer to, let's say, supervisor, that's the common word that usually is used in that, in that first step out, step up. The common tradition in, in modern business is the people that fill that slot don't get a lot of training on what it means to be a manager. They don't get a good orientation. They are somehow expected by osmosis to perform. And inevitably what they get into is a mindset. They're, they're self-fulfilling saying, well, I got promoted because I was a good doer. I, I was a good individual contributor. Therefore, I need to figure out how to manage all these people, but still do what I did and keep doing more of it. And sometimes that works and it works so well that even guess what? You get promoted again. Now you're not a supervisor, but you're right. a manager and you've got three, four, five supervisors reporting to you. And it, it, it begins this gerbil circle of, of activity of doing more and more and more because that's where you came from. And the pivot that needs to happen is, yes, no doubt your team still has some expectations of deliverables on how they're mm -hmm. going to contribute to the organization. But you as an individual have to make that pivot and start asking the question, you know, what does it mean to effectively manage and ultimately lead this team of people? Mm -hmm. And that's a journey of learning that has to start. And whether you get there with mentors or coaches or training classes, I think the very first step is the awareness that there is a need for a shift. Agreed. And I think the, I think when I trans made that transition initially, um, I mean, it was interesting for me. I knew all the processes. I knew, you know, the management systems that were used and yeah, I was a team lead before that. And, and so it was interesting making the transition because, you know, earlier you mentioned, uh, it's people you're dealing with. And when you lose sight of that, it's like, Ouch. Right. And so making that shift and I, you know, I work with small business owners and a lot of times they're, they're a great engineer. They're a great, um, you know, landscaper. And then they make that shift into business and they're like, uh, something's not working right here. And, right. and it's, so it's, it, I think there's got, there's implications across, you know, many different areas that when folks make that shift from doer to, uh, to leader, uh, my, my bride of 30 plus years is making that transition right now, going from pre-K teacher to assistant director. And so she's going through that and understanding, you know, some of the challenges with that. So, um, so when you, you mentioned the pandemic earlier, so I want to, I want to dive into that a little bit more. I think there's, there's some nuggets there. Um, you talk about some of the big workplace shifts that are happening right now. What are some of those in, um, what, what are some of the things that people can, um, use to, to learn more, you know, to understand more about those shifts? Well, at, at the risk of getting a little too deep in some weeds somewhere, let me say this first. 
One of the big things that I think has happened that people are struggling to understand and deal with is that it's, it's in my mind, undeniable that during the worst and the darkest days of, of the advent of COVID, there was just a lot of uncertainty and, and mm-hmm. people were dealing perhaps for the first time in their lives with their own mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't know how severe that junk was going to be. We didn't know what it really did to your health. We we were inundated with bad information in a lot of cases, and and the good information that was there was hard to absorb and usually mm-hmm. challenged when it was published. So there was a lot of this uncertainty, and so the bottom line is people were dealing with their mortality. Well, what does that mean? They all realize we have an an unbelievable short time on this planet. We do. And so I think everybody that everybody that I've ever talked to and everybody that I know, they talk about their teams in one form or fashion, people now are showing up to work with a whole different mindset about what it means to have a job. Mm-hmm. And I heard one guy eloquently say the other day, work used to be a place we went and it was, it was an event. It was, it was a thing we did. Now, some liked it a lot better than others, obviously, but um, it was a whole different dynamic. Now it's, it's not a place we go. It's, and it's not necessarily even a thing we do in the old way of thinking about it, but it is a necessity for uh, sustaining the the lifestyle you want to have. And all of that has turned into a couple of different dynamics that I've seen in the workplace, and I've heard executives at pretty high levels in some notable global brands expressing frustration, trying to figure out the question, how do we organize the new work world? Mm-hmm. Most people want to continue working remote if their job allowed them to do that before. I mean, if they weren't a refinery worker or in a mine or on a production line somewhere, they had a chance to work remotely. Mm-hmm. And they figured out, hey, it can work. <laughs> we we can. We can. made it work pretty quick. We made it work real quick. And data for the period, the first two years of COVID, corporate productivity actually went up. It didn't go down. And people are scratching their heads going, yeah, but that's an anomaly, yada, yada, yada. And we can get way deep in the weeds on that. But the point is, I think there is a mindset shift. So if you're leading a team now in one of these businesses where it's possible to have people working remote, you have to take on a whole different mindset about how to connect, inspire, and motivate those people mm-hmm. to to want to stay on your team. Oh, absolutely. Um, so one of the one of the big things that's happening right now is the whole return to office. You know, corporate executives said, oh no, we're going to stay remote. We're going to be remote for the rest of the uh, you know, in literally downsized offices. But now, in fact, in our area here in the Northwest, the major tech companies are saying, nope, you got to come back to the office. So there's a shift happening and and there's some pushback. I mean, uh, but, you know, like you said, your lifestyle, the job 
potential necessity. How, what are you hearing as far as from corporate executives who are telling their folks the need to come back to the office and what, what are you hearing in, in how are they dealing with that? Because they've, they've changed their tune, so to speak on working remotely. Yeah. I, I from my unscientific view of, of that, and just based on all the anecdotal input I get from my clients, I think the ultimate answer to that is still all over the board. I don't think anybody's landed on the ideal circumstance or combination of events. Um, I was coaching a, an executive at one of the big firms who had a headquarters building in downtown Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And when the pandemic, the lockdown lifted and it was possible to get everybody back, the company asked pretty much mandated people started returning. Well, what they didn't account for is that for a period of time, it wasn't safe to walk in downtown Atlanta during the day. Oh, wow. So the safety element had changed. The whole dynamic of the, the geography had changed. And the only way the company was going to be able to convince people to come back in their office was to provide security to and from the parking lot. Wow. That's huge. <laughs> And that's a big deal. And, big. and it's a very valid and real concern on behalf of the employee. Wow. I never. You know, muggings and people being purse snatched and all that was, uh, was, a, was a very real phenomenon. Now, I think some of that's abated, but the point is it, it's yet another outside force that was influencing the decision the company needed to make. And I also, I interviewed a gentleman who's a recruiter. He was on my podcast a couple of months ago, and he said that in his work, he will not take an engagement from an employer that demands a full-time return to the office. Uh -huh. Because he said it's a non-starter in the pool of talent that he works with. And most of it is tech, by the way. Uh -huh. Um he said what he knows of the clients that come to him and are looking for help landing new opportunities right at the top of the list is, you know, if it's, if it's a hundred percent Monday through Friday, I'm out. No, I'm not interested. Don't, wow. don't present me for a job like that. That's interesting. Don't well, waste I, anybody's time. <laughs> I guess, you know, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense because we had, um, a good friend of my my brides, uh, they relocated from this area to the other side of the state, and it's a tech company. And they said, "Yep, that's fine, but we're going to cut your salary by twenty percent." And they were fine with it. Uh, so it's interesting because we had a lot of folks move out of this area, move to you know rural, what most folks would call rural, uh, into Montana and places like that. But now that they're required to come back to the office. Um, we're we're not seeing the big shift to move back in this area in the, in, in our area. So, um, and you know, worker safety is is very critical. I mean, you know, we uh, Seattle is struggling. Uh, hopefully, you haven't heard about Seattle being in the news, but yeah, they're struggling a little bit with security and with things that are going on there. And and that's one of the things where uh, you wouldn't have thought. I mean. Because I've been downtown Atlanta, and and it, it was a few years ago, but I did some work there with IBM, and never had any issues. But I guess you know that's a great point coming back from the pandemic. Uh, 
you better hope they're, you know, they feel secure doing that. So, mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. Well, so one of the things you talked about was trust and, and um, so how do you build that trust at work and within the team in light of the new um, remote work as well as, uh, you know, partial return to office? Uh, I mean, in the office, I think that's, it's not, I'm not going to say it's easy. It's, it's probably easier than full remote work, but so how do you do that? Yeah, uh, also a great question. I, a colleague of mine and I have been working on this for a number of years, and we had actually started, uh, we had agreed we needed to write a book together to address this issue, and we wanted to speak about a program we're both familiar with, and we've used it for years in our own corporate experience, but we 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 couldn't think of a catchy term or phrase or title. We just called it simply the team trust model. Hmm. And as we were putting the finishing touches on our book, the um, infamous Google study called Project Aristotle was released. And what that study did, Google in all their wisdom looked around and said, you know, our hiring practices are legendary. I mean, a movie was made out of it, right? So yeah. we get we get the top of the top, the cream of, of the cream. And yet, when we assemble these people on various teams for the work we do, not all teams perform the same. Mm -hmm. That, by definition, shouldn't happen. So what's up with that? Well, and so they embarked on a two-year study. They did all this work, and then they result. They released the results, and the the runaway winner in terms of what contributed to the best performing teams was this thing they called psychological safety, and I think it was by virtue of their report that that phrase took on a new life. And mm -hmm. when you read the text, though, ultimately, in simple terms, we're talking about good old fashioned trust. Mm -hmm. I. Trust the people around me, not just my boss and management, but my coworkers, my colleagues, my shareholders, stakeholders. There's a level of trust. And when that happens, an individual is able to kick into that second gear, that that 110% zone. Yeah. And in, in my book, we call it discretionary effort. You know, their their choice to do more at mm -hmm. work. And I make the argument that everybody that shows up for a job has both of those gears. They'll they'll show up and they'll do a good job, but it's not necessarily a great job right. until they're inspired and motivated to kick into that second gear and put in that little extra effort and do more. So how do we get there? The quick answer is to think about your own experience when you were dating your significant other, you know, when you first met and you began the process, you went out on dates and what did you do? You asked each other questions. You had a dialogue about life, about your look at the world, your beliefs, your values, your opinions, your standards, all those things. And you gradually tick the boxes and said, yes, 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 yes. All right, bing, this is the person. This is the one. Well, guess what? Employees do the same thing at work. They show up with questions. Questions for the boss, questions for their coworkers, questions for the team, the, the mm -hmm. company. 
So as a leader, your ultimate challenge in my mind is to be ready and be vigilant for digging out the questions that haven't been answered yet. Mm. And the more you can do to set up a culture where, it, number one, it's fair to ask your question, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you're not going to be told it's a bad or stupid question. You're going to be given a voice in, in asking the question. And the leader provides the best answer they can, and, and at least even if it's not a perfectly favorable answer, at least explain why. Right. You know, why is it this way? You know, why why do we pay on Thursdays, not on Fridays? You know, I, I mean, there's got to be a reason, right? Yeah. There's, and I so mean, you, you have ahead, that sorry. discussion. It's interesting because when folks don't feel safe to ask questions or if it, you know, if you have a bad experience, like you just referred to, you know, stupid question. And if someone were to ask a question and get told, Hey, that's a dumb question. They're not going to ask any more questions because you're not going to know you know, is that a, is this allowed or is this not allowed? And so I think that that's interesting. Um, the psychological safety, as you mentioned, is, is something that, you know, strong and robust teams have. Um, I was thinking back to my experience in the military, you know, we, that, that trust gets created pretty quickly depending on the circumstances you're in. Uh, so in, in, in the corporate environment, it takes a little bit to build that because you're, you're right. You're asking those questions. You're, you had me thinking back to when I was dating. I was like, Oh, what questions was I asking back then? But, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely, to build that trust, it's through questions and being curious. So, well, I, I always I, I do go back to a military training example that really kind of crystallized this idea for me of what it means to trust those on your team. You know, in a in a in a basic infantry maneuver, when you lay down your front line, you know, you build a foxholes for everybody. But you lay out your line of fire in crisscross patterns. So, you know, I'm not shooting in front of me. I'm shooting off to one side, but it's crisscrossed with the guy next to me on both sides. So we've Mm -hmm. got this this, uh, mesh net of of fire going down line. And it takes a lot of trust, you know, to say, well, I'm going to trust the guy next to me shooting the way he's supposed to be doing so that I'm covered. Right. Because now I'm shooting another way. I'm not shooting out in front of me, protecting my flank, you know? So that's very it's, true. Uh, it's a very interesting dynamic when, when it gets to be that, you know, that demonstrable of having that element of trust with your coworkers. It is. And it's, um, you know, having been on teams that, that have achieved that, I think the, you know, the 110% you talk about that extra 10% discretionary, um, when you see people do that, it's kind of their aha moment that, you know, Hey, I'm at that point. Uh, you know, I, I do this, it, it may not be extra work, but it's, you know, they're putting forth more effort. They're putting forth, um, that. And, and if I, you know, one of the things <clears throat> back in my tech days, uh, when I was in leadership, you know, if I would, we had a, a goal to hit, uh, you had to be Microsoft certified on certain different, on certain applications. 
and Microsoft came in and I was working for Gateway at the time. I don't know if you remember the cow spotted boxes, but oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we had to in 30 days, we had to meet a certain level of certification within our tier two engineering. Otherwise, we we're gonna lose three million bucks. And um, you know, rallied the troops, everyone got certified, including myself. Um it, and so it was one of the things where it, it it exemplified what you talked about. The team came together and and we all got certified. But if you know, rewind a little bit in my leadership where I was failing miserably with that same exact team, we'd have never done it. I mean, it it yeah, we'd have lost three million bucks, and I probably would have been out of a job at that point. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about the this team trust model that I've got, number one, the the notion that there are questions, I break that down into six different zones, six different areas that are the common areas that people ask, and when I'm doing this as a team exercise in in larger companies, I'll present all the material. We'll talk about the six areas where questions ruminate. And at the end, I, I play a little bit of, I play a game with the audience. I'll say, give me a situation. Let me show you which one of the six areas it goes to. And it's real easy from a leadership standpoint to slot anything and everything I've ever heard in the work setting and into one of those six buckets. It's mm -hmm. never failed. I mean, I've I've done it now for about twelve years, and I've batted a thousand the whole way, <laughs> because Congrats. because it 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 is an excellent comprehensive framework. And what's beautiful about it, when you teach this uh, six part team trust model to a whole team, I'll come back months later and sit in on a team meeting, and they will have changed their whole vocabulary. Hmm. They'll they'll conduct their meeting saying. Hey guys, I got an issue over here in zone three, you know, and, oh, right. and let's frame it up and let's, let's talk about this thing. We, we have a, a, a chink in our armor over here in number three. And, um, it, it's just really amazing to me how the mindset starts to shift in that. And what that does at a team level, it takes the focus away from individuals of, mm -hmm. you know, you're doing this wrong or you're not doing enough of this or whatever. And it says, you know, we have a challenge in this area. Let's, let's solve it as a team and, and shore up this one thing. Wow. Congratulations. And congrats on the book. When's the book coming out? Oh, it's been out. It's, it's been uh, out. It's actually been out about a year and a half. It's called the team trust model. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Get that. Uh, from your website, Amazon, everywhere Amazon. else. Yeah. Okay. Congrats on that. So, what are the what are the questions I I love and and I think there's you know there's differing opinions. Uh, but can anyone become a leader? Ah, the golden question. Uh, yes, and sometimes the way that's been worded is you know is leadership born or bred? Well, mm -hmm. for all the many years I've been doing this, and and. In the spirit of full disclosure, I've actually modified my thinking on it somewhat. And the bottom line, the quick answer is yes. Mm -hmm. I think um, there are opportunities for those who are placed in roles of authority that don't understand leadership to be trained and learn what it means to be a better leader. Now, does that mean everybody should or could be a leader? No. <laughs> Agreed. Not necessarily. 
Um, however, the opportunity is there, and with the right training, coaching, and mentoring, someone who wants to embrace the principles of leadership can, in fact, create for themselves a leadership toolkit and go perform with a leadership mindset. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there's I know there's some folks out there that, nope. Not everybody can become a leader. And I think it's, um, you know, another area that the military does pretty well is, as we know, is, to, you know, if you're in a conflict and things happen, you know, there's people already that are in that line that can step up and lead. Now, like you said, not all of them are successful, but uh, so it's it's definitely I, I'm in your camp about, you know, folks can learn. Uh, they can they need to be coachable for one. Uh right. And able to become that leader. And so we'll jump into the lightning round as we land the plane or helicopter since you were stationed at Fort Rucker. All right. All right. Um, so what are three books you'd recommend and why? Three books. Oh, great, great, great. Well, in no particular order, I am a fan of Simon Sinek's, uh, you know, Begin With Why?, and um, I, I think the notion of locking in and connecting with your own sense of personal purpose is a very powerful foundation for being the best leader you can be. If, if you don't know where you're coming from, you're, you're not going to help others very much. So that's one. Um, another book that I, I tend to turn to a lot is John Maxwell's 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Love that you book. Know, as I talk to people, people ask me, you know, well, define leadership. What are some of the attributes? Well, the bad news is you go to Amazon, you're going to get 600,000 references on the term leadership. And there's all kinds of books out there. Everybody's got a little bit different framework and vocabulary. But I appreciate what Maxwell did. Now, 21 is a long list. <laughs> um, but as John himself says, nobody's ever going to master all 21. But if you get close to figuring out how to leverage these things and use these things, you're you're going to be a pretty darn effective leader. And then um, there, there are so many nowadays that are coming out, it's almost hard to keep up with. But there's an interesting one, and now I'm sitting here as you asked me, I've, I've forgot the author's name, but it's a, it's a book called uh, Lincoln on Leadership. And it's uh, it's a historic look back at the things that Lincoln talked about, wrote about in his journey of navigating the Civil War as President of the United States. And uh, it's a, in my mind, it's a fascinating premise on leadership that most people don't turn to or look for, but it's uh, it's really amazing to to look at some of the insights that come out of that. I'll have to uh, add a, I think I need to add a book to my list this year. Lincoln Leadership, was that the title? Lincoln on Leadership. Lincoln on Leadership. All right, perfect. So what are three favorite movies and why? Oh, goodness, goodness. Again, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to hit you in no particular order. I'll hit them as they come up. I'm a huge fan of Field of Dreams. Um, mm. It's just a, a tremendous Hallmark movie. And um, I, gosh, um, what else? What else? 
that's probably one of the big ones. Um, that's a little stumper. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm trying to think of a lot of different ones. I, um, I, I, I've been a big fan of Harrison Ford. I guess Air Force One is one of my favorite. Oh ones. yeah. You know, get off my plane. Yeah, I love being maybe being around aviation. That's that was a good one for me. And uh, goodness, what else? What else? What else? I'm kind of drawing a blank on a third one. Sorry. Ah, no worries. So, Field of Dreams. I've got to ask: Are you a baseball fan? I am, but not in the the kind of rabid, crazy kind of way. Oh, I'm not. I'm not either. I just I love the game. Having played and coached it, uh, I've got to ask: What do you think of the new pitch? the pitch timer. I think there's something to be said for it. I, I just, I think there's other parts of the game that we could probably focus attention on and do, do more to speed up the play than just that alone. But we'll see. Yeah, it's uh, I've seen some numbers. It looks like the preseason games have decreased 20 to 30 minutes. Um, really? Okay. Well, now, I could, I could probably go for that. <laughs> so I, yeah, I could, I could definitely go for that. Cause some of the longer games I'm like, Oh, these, these need to end. But the, uh, one of the games ended on uh, the batter got called out third strike for not being in the batter's box on time. And it ended in a tie. I don't, I don't like that aspect of it. I think the, I don't know, maybe the ninth inning, the pitch, Pitch timer goes out the window or something, but yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, it's uh, well, no, this has been great. Where can our audience go to learn more about you and, and the work that you're doing? Well, I appreciate that, Dean. The easiest way is just to go to my website, it is dougthorpe.com, and that's T H O R P E.com. And uh, I've got a lot of information there. There are links to my, my blog and my podcasts and all my books and all the good stuff that's that's out there. Well, I see the your podcast, Leadership Powered. So if you haven't had a chance to check that out, please do that. And uh, well, jo- Doug, I appreciate you joining us today on From Battle to Business. It's been great. Uh, I always love talking leadership, uh, having having learned the hard way many, many years ago about uh, making that shift from doer to, to leader. And uh, luckily, like like you said, having that mentor and coach in your corner is, is one of the, the key things. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. All right, folks, that's we're going to call a wrap on this. We greatly appreciate Doug joining us today. Go create that legendary day. Thanks for listening. In order to help others, please subscribe and share this show up with other veteran business owners in your network. If you want specific guidance, feel free to book a complimentary call with Dean at deanvandyke.com. Remember, you wouldn't go into battle alone. And now you don't have to in business.